Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire, the News Bureau Chief of WFIU and WTIU. Preparing for the end of your life can be a grim and a difficult process. As a result, putting our affairs in order tends to fall to the bottom of our to-do lists. Part of being human is knowing and coming to terms with our own mortality. There's no telling when our time will come, so how can we be best prepared for it? When is the right time to draft a will? we fall ill, who should take care of us? These are questions we're going to explore today on Noon Edition with three panelists. We have Peggy Frisbee, who is an Indiana trust and estate lawyer at Bunger and Robertson here in Bloomington. Melanie Miller is licensed clinical social worker and a volunteer coordinator at IU Health Hospice. And Carol Seidel is a licensed clinical social worker and a therapist at In Tandem Counseling, LLC, in Bloomington. You can join us uh, on the program at 812-855-0811 or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions at uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being here today. Thank you. Glad to be here. So why is this such a tough topic to talk about? Peggy? I think I'll take it okay. because I, as an attorney, I often, of course, I'm dealing with people who are not in a crisis situation, so it is very much about talking about planning ahead. Mm-hmm. And I know for lots of folks, it's really difficult to acknowledge your mortality. Okay? It really is. Let's, you know, we'll all be honest about that. On the other hand, it's a gift to everybody you know, your family, your friends, to do that planning. Mm-hmm. You never know when you're really going to need it, okay? And, you know, we talk about when is the right time to do a will. Now mm-hmm. is the answer if you're over age 18, mm-hmm. okay? And I can sideways into that, but I won't too much. But it's not also just about inheritance of things. It is very much also about what really the other panelists here, uh, the other people here today deal with every day, which is planning for your health care, Okay, uh, for being incapacitated, you know we, I'm constantly with clients are saying, okay, you, you came in the door, you told me what you want to do, you thought about who's going to inherit your assets, but you know not everybody just gets in that car crash that suddenly they're gone. Okay, most of us have a period of disability. Okay, mm-hmm. and you really have to plan for that too, and it's very very important. Um, And that very much is whether you're 18 or 90, okay? Mm -hmm. So at least where I come from and where the folks at my firm working with estate planning do, we call it estate planning. That means not just wills. It means definitely also talking about that other piece, which is planning for incapacity through the proper documents and uh, sort of helping you get through that process. Um, I often say, you know, the best way is just give us a phone call. You just make that first meeting, okay, and then, you know, you can be in a rational context and uh, work you through the mm-hmm. steps that you need to do for decision-making, mm-hmm. okay? It's much better to do it when you're uh, aware and in a, a better place and being able to plan, correct? Well, if you don't do it then, <laughs> yeah. then, you know, legally we're really limited in what can happen. You know, if you don't do it ahead of time, and you have become incapacitated, our options are pretty limited. You know, there's a little bit in the healthcare area that the law helps out in terms of who can make decisions for you, provide authority for, you know, telling the doctor, nurses, et cetera, what to do. On the financial side, you know, we're talking about going to court and get a guardianship, okay? And that's a process that can be pretty easily avoided by having the right documents in place. A financial power of attorney, in particular, okay, mm-hmm. but also other things that are in my toolbox, <laughs> right. okay. May I go back to yeah. your question for a moment yeah, sure, um, about why mm-hmm. it's difficult for people to come to Peggy or to others and to make those decisions and plans ahead of time? Mm-hmm. And I'm addressing it more from a, an emotional standpoint um, at first, just thinking about mortality and having to let go of this life and 
the unknown of what's going to happen and and perhaps even denial to some extent you know it's it's a long ways away as peggy says things can happen very quickly and unexpectedly um so between those things of of looking at that end of life transition and what might help it be more smooth both for the individual and for their family and loved ones those fears can get in the way Mm -hmm. um but the the other thing too is i think just a lack of information and that's why having these public conversations uh, to bring this more to the forefront and to say it's okay to talk about these things and to educate people on what their choices are uh, to deal with things ahead of time, to put it off to the last minute. Every, every choice we make has its own consequences, and, but, but there are professionals here in the community who can assist people in coming to grips with that and understanding the important elements, but we have to kind of first get beyond that that silence um, and that feeling that, oh, this is a very private, personal thing, because mm-hmm. this is something that we share as the human race, you mm-hmm. know, and as a species to to support each other right. throughout the spectrum of life. Mm-hmm. And Carol, I'd like for you to add to that, too, from yeah. your perspective. So. I think um, as both uh, Peggy and Melanie said, you know, there is that fear of, you know, what happens if I'm not here? I don't want to think about not being here. I'm worried about my family. Uh, When I worked, uh, I've worked in hospice, inpatient, and in oncology, and when I've dealt with patients that are terminally ill, usually they're pretty aware of their situation, often even before the physician has told them. And they're trying to grapple with that. They're kind of almost more okay with that, but they're worried about other people. The family is worried about the person that's dying, and nobody's having the conversation because they don't want to upset each other. They're really afraid. Well, what if I have that conversation? If I say to my dad, um, I'm, I was seeing a patient recently in my private practice who has a father who's dying, and um, she told me, he's one of the most important people in my life. My dad has meant so much to me. And I said, well, you're telling me these things, but have you told your dad? And she said, no, I haven't told my dad because I'm afraid if I say that, it'll really hit home to him that he's dying. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, your dad asked to be put on hospice services. He understands what hospice means. He said, I know that I'm no longer going to have treatment and I will die from my disease. I think your dad knows that he's dying. Mm -hmm. What do you think about having that conversation? And that was a really powerful moment for her and to be able to then go and have that conversation with him. And I've... um, there was an article in the New York Times a while ago, an op-ed, uh, where somebody said, oh, these um, deathbed conversations just don't happen. They're a fallacy. And I think that's what's frustrating to all of us is, like, they don't have to be a fallacy or a myth. These, these conversations can happen before the deathbed. They can happen. We can plan things so that our family, so that we are all ready and aware of what's happening, and we're all supporting each other. And as Melanie said, and Peggy, there are so many resources, and we each have different roles. And so helping pe- people find those resources, um, I think is is really good, and having programs like this so people understand that there are different people out there that can help. Mm-hmm. Peggy, one of the things you mentioned, <coughs> you said if you're 18, you should have a will. So then how do you respond to the people who say, I'm 18, I have zero assets? Yeah, let me clarify on that, because I certainly understand you're 18, you have zero assets. So my emphasis really with that very young person is more so on the incapacity side, okay? The power of attorney and health care documents, okay? Um, you know, to some extent, uh, many clients I, I work with are very concerned about the inheritance for their children, and then they send them off to college. And, of course, we know what happens once you're an adult at that point, there is nobody else uh, that legally can uh, access your information, okay? Um, so on the one side, the healthcare documents, if you have even a college student here at IU who has a health incident occur, you know, by the, you know, we have some ways to back into that, but it can be family situations where there's actually not 
anybody in our group of go-to people who can actually fill in, and more so on the financial side. If we think about the things, not so much inheritance, who applies for insurance, who claims insurance, who deals with bills, who does all that stuff, who deals with credit card companies, then you have to, you know, really legally at 18, nobody else can really step in unless you have a power of attorney. I'd rather not, in some ways, though, overemphasize that because I think our real, um, you know, our real concern is with folks who, on the healthcare side, you actually are outside that population group, okay? And also on the financial side to have things in order. And I think you mentioned very much just now, Carol, about that interaction between parent, child, parent, or, you know, your person and other family. And really have that conversation take place and not to wait to do that, okay? It is a gift to everybody else to actually do that planning and to be dealing with your mortality and make sure you have things, quote unquote, in order, mm-hmm. okay? So, so how, um, not to beat a dead horse, but how often should you be updating your will you know, th- throughout your yeah. lifetime? Because you hear about some people who, you know, <laughs> every month if they change their opinion about something, they might go update yeah. their will. And yeah. some people maybe haven't touched it since they're 18. Oh, yes, okay. <laughs> I can definitely tell you the classic points at which people do this <laughs> in planning, okay? When you have your, not necessarily when you get married, but when you have your first child, right? Uh, next is maybe some other event happens. People do get triggered by dealing with their own parents' death, okay? Definitely have people come in who say, you know, I just went through this process. I have to do something. Um, and, of course, when you're retiring and when you're aging, um, when should you do it? Much more frequently, okay? Um, a 20-year-old out-of-date or nothing <laughs> is not good. But my bottom line is probably every three or four or five years, you should really be taking a hard look. If you've done some planning, you have some will and other documents in place, yeah, you can give it a pause, okay? But be looking at it regularly every year on your own and then probably every five years or so, it's good to get some professional advice to take a look at it. So if you've had because convers- things change, yeah. If you've had conversations with your family about what you might want, but there's an outdated will, I'm, the outdated will would be the document that everybody goes absolutely. Off of. Mm-hmm. So absolutely. too, let's clarify. Yeah. So a will generally that is to deal with financial, mm-hmm. and when we're talking about um, people making healthcare decisions for you, then we're going to go into a durable power of attorney for healthcare or a healthcare representative form. So those are yeah. the two. Um, lawyers tend to do the durable power of attorney for healthcare, but we can do the, um, when it's with other financial, mm-hmm. but social workers can um, do healthcare representative forms, but we do not do anything financial. Mm-hmm. That's when we kind of turn people to attorneys for assistance with um, things like that. And again, I think Peggy made a point about when you're incapacitated, so we would have people sometimes in the hospital who were, they were not dying, but they had some situation that was really, they were very injured, they were on a lot of pain meds, and they're saying to me, I don't know what to do because I can't pay my bills, I can't get to my checkbook, I can't get to these things, I can't do these things, and I don't have anybody to pay my bills for me. And I couldn't, at the hospital, we couldn't say, we couldn't have our notary come down and say, yes, this person is okay, to have somebody else sign paperwork because the person was on pain meds. The person is in a, in, in a position where maybe they're not able to verbalize very well. So too, getting some of those financial things, it's not just about end of life, but it's like if anything came up, you wanna know that you've got somebody that can step in and can kind of help out in those situations. Yeah. Let me give our phone numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington. That's with the 812 area code, so 812-855. Zero eight one one, toll free one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight, and you can also email us um, at news at indianapublicmedia dot org or follow us on Twitter at noon, noon edition. Peggy, you wanted to add something, or Melanie did? Okay. Yeah, I'd like to add something sure. as we're having this conversation about wills um, and other documents that people can execute at any point. Um, some of the most important ones that we feel. Uh, are helpful that do not require an attorney is a healthcare representative, 
um, and also a living will or other instructions for uh, care if the patient become if the individual becomes incapacitated and unable to speak for themselves. Those documents a couple decades ago were made available to citizens everywhere over the age of 18 who might not have a complex situation or need an attorney but still want to put their wishes in writing. Um, the healthcare representative, I think, is especially important for anyone age 18 or over because they're basically appointing someone to be their spokesperson and make medical decisions for them on their behalf in conjunction with others and the physician if that person becomes unable mm -hmm. for any reason. It, it might not be a terminal illness. It might be uh, that they've had a stroke or um, they've had some situation that has rendered them uh, you know, mentally unable or incompetent to, to make decisions and participate in conversations at that time. And in the state of Indiana, there there's a large group of people who may be authorized to make decisions uh, for a loved one if that person becomes incapacitated, family members, spouses, parents, siblings, children, it's all one big thing. So if there is a specific individual that you know would, that you can communicate with and that you have a trusting relationship with and who would honor your wishes and represent you, to name that individual as your healthcare representative to step up in those situations is one of the most important things people can do. Um, aside from that, then you can give your healthcare representative all the instructions, you know, living wills, you know, I want to be kept going with, you know, tube feedings and hydration under whatever circumstances, or I want, you know, CPR, resuscitation, or, you know, other treatments under these situations and this. And you can put as much of that in writing as you want. It's not a legal document, but it's instructions mm -hmm. to the person that you know would be speaking for you. And I truly feel, because of the unpredictability of life, that that's probably the single most important thing that anyone could do at this point. It's, I, I do believe when my wife and I got our wills, I think when we signed something like that, there were more than one. I mean, you can name one and then if that person's right. not, right? Yeah, in connection with um, the healthcare documents in particular, and just sort of back up a moment, there is a statute in place in Indiana that does, as, as Melanie was mentioning, identifies a group of people who are allowed to give consent for a person who cannot give their own healthcare consent. But it is a group. So, of course, and I often am concerned with Melanie's uh, and Carol's situation working in the actual medical context of an event actually happening. Somebody is actually already ill. And then having to deal with a group of family members who may have different opinions, of course, about what's to be done. So that's, that's why you plan ahead. Okay, mm -hmm. That's why you do this when you are competent when you are not sick yet, okay? Um, also, yes, the hospital and hospice and everybody in the medical context will offer the healthcare documents, but that's often when you're being admitted as a patient or you're already ill. It's not the best context for making these decisions, right? right. Okay? So again, I have to stress to do it ahead of time. The other documents that you can do is a living will. Let's be clear, that is not a will for inheritance. A living will is a document to direct whether or not medication and treatment are gonna be terminated if you are terminal and gonna pass away shortly, okay? Um, again, and actually everybody should know that in the hospital setting, federal law requires the hospital to offer that to you. So everybody coming in is gonna be offered that document. Again, you're, you know, you make your decision ahead of time what you want to do, but make sure that better is to think about these things before you're already ill or going in as a patient. Um, another document is the consent for who's going to be able to allow to talk to doctors. That's what we call a HIPAA release. And we go into doctor's offices, all of us at this point, and have to sign that or in the hospital. Well, what if you are in the car accident? What if you are in a sudden event? So we provide a HIPAA release, and that also allows you to, also oftentimes these forms that you're presented give you one name. 
well, why can't you let your kids, all your kids, have access to the information instead of just one person? No, that's a discussion, actually. That's a planning discussion. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so there is the, the whole area of healthcare planning is not simplified. Mm-hmm. And then just to wrap back up to where I started is actually the state bar, my, the attorneys, are looking at that law about a group. <laughs> and we've got a tug going back and forth about how to prioritize, but there is a discussion, serious discussion underway about amending that law so that there is a prioritization. Carol, did you have something you wanted to add before we... Uh... Yeah, I, I want to state, too, that, that really, in my mind, I agree that when we're talking about health care, the top priority is that health care representative form, and that kind of supersedes even the living will, because um, there are so many... The, the living will sets out, like, a few options, and it doesn't set up every single time or circumstance that might come up. Whereas the healthcare rep form, if you are having communication regularly with the person um, that would make decisions for you, they're going to be able to understand really what your values are, what your goals are, and then help figure out, is this treatment going to help meet that? Is the, what kind of care does this person want? It's too difficult. There are so many complex things that can come down. We can't just sit there and say, well, yes, I would want this or I wouldn't want that. The other thing is, and I've definitely seen this working across the spectrum. I've been with people when they've been diagnosed with diseases as they're ill and then as they're re- realizing that they are maybe terminal to the point that they die. So I've had experience working in that whole um kind of life phase with people and kind of sometimes what you think you want will change right so I had one couple and they said you know if you had asked us at the beginning what we would put up with you know it wasn't a lot but you know what right now all we can do is cuddle on the couch but by God cuddling on the couch is really nice and we are really enjoying it so these, some of these decisions that you can't think of it as just like, well, I've done this and that's it and we're done. Life is fluid. And so you want to have somebody that you, ca- that you care about and you can communicate with. And then also sometimes it's picking the person who would be your health care rep. It's not necessarily just like, oh, it should be my husband or my wife or my child. You really want to think about who could help you in that situation. So, for instance, I'm my best friend's health care rep. She said, my husband could not cope with having to make this decision. My parents are elderly, but I know that you have the knowledge when the physicians talk to you and you will translate that to my family and you will help them and you will make the best decision for me. Mm -hmm. And she and I are, and we talk regularly about, she's also a healthcare social worker, so that helps. But, you know, we we understand each other. So sometimes even figuring out who should be um, the person and then also that there are people like Melanie and myself to help facilitate those conversations with families. So if you're not sure where to begin, well, you can mm-hmm. you can meet with somebody who can help you have that conversation. Right. Melanie, take us to our break. Yeah. About one minute. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, if people are interested in uh, looking at those documents further, we've been talking a lot about the healthcare representative and the living will. Uh, the state of Indiana does have uh, statutory forms that are created for use by the public does not require, again, an attorney does not require a notary. Uh, They just need a simple witness or two signature on it to make the legal document. They can go on to the indiana.gov website and search for those forms, or they can also contact the Bloomington Hospital, IU Health Bloomington Hospital. Mm -hmm. Pastoral Care Services has what's called a clear pocket. And it's a clear envelope, and it has in it copies of uh, the living will, the health care representative, and information about other choices regarding advanced directives. And those are available at no charge to the public. Uh, Very quickly. Is there any time left? Um, Also, uh, maybe we'll come back after break and very quickly uh, talk about it. But I think we should address the post, um, which is another thing that enters into this conversation. Um, and the other thing really with the healthcare representative appointment is the only thing I would caution is not to have multiple documents out there. Yes. And I have encountered that with clients um, where they have signed off on one thing at one uh, medical office, they've done something else somewhere else, and then they think what they've signed with me 
is the governing document, but of course now we've got conflicting things going on. So wherever it is done, it needs to be consistent. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So mm -hmm. In that case, yeah. would you use the one that has the most recent date on it? Would supersede the older ones? That's how we've done if it. If you had in multiples, yeah. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. All right. Okay. We're, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have to yeah. go to our break. When we come back, we're gonna talk a lot more about end of life and how you can prepare for it. You're listening to Noon Edition. We'll be right back. Yeah. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times, along with Sarah Whitmire from WFIU and WTIU. We're talking about uh, creating a will and some other end-of-life issues today with Peggy Frisbee, Indiana Trust and Estate Lawyer at Bunger and Robertson here in Bloomington, Melanie Miller, Licensed Clinical uh, Social Worker and Volunteer Coordinator at IU Health Hospice in Bloomington, and Carol Seidel, Licensed Clinical Social Worker and Therapist at In Tandem Counseling, LLC in Bloomington. You can join us at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or toll free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions at uh, news at indianapublicmedia.org and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So prior to the break, we were talking about all these different forms to have in place, wills, health care directives, um, health representative form. So probably a really dumb question, but how do you know if somebody has one of those on file and then if I if I do something at a hospital without an attorney, how do those speak to other hospitals so they're connected? You know, that's an interesting one. And I'm actually going to do a little bit of referral to these folks. Um, you know, I know that the hospital will accept these on file, even if you're not a patient. Um, but it's back to that coordination. So from my starting point, which is sitting as an attorney preparing these, you know, I provide the clients the documents to use. I say share it with your your person that you have named, your particularly your first named person that you've named to be your healthcare representative. Make sure they have a batch of it. And then yeah, I do end up sending them off into the world. <laughs> and there is a burden on the family on the person, on my client, the p potential patient, as well as that healthcare representative to make sure that they don't start executing conflicting documents, okay? And then we go into the world, the real world, a medical um, world. Um, and I will say as background, I know this is an area that between the American Bar Association, American Medical Association, has really been trying to do some work to try to get our worlds to intersect better. So it, could it be a thing that I tell my my family knows that, well, I've worked with Peggy, and if something were to happen, then they couldn't Absolutely. just go to you and get a copy, or they could? Well, I you send on these kinds of documents, I keep a copy, but I try to make sure that the client is taking all these documents out and providing them to the family member or whoever's the representative, provide it to their physicians if they go to the hospital, okay. take those documents with them. Okay. Really? So, okay. Oh, yes. Can I just jump in here for a minute? Because yeah. I've had a lot of experience with okay. this and people not having documents or having the documents or thinking they have one document, but it's really a different document. 
And one thing is, absolutely, Bloomington Hospital, IU Health Bloomington Hospital will accept your documents. You can just send them in the mail even to them, to the um, health information, the HIMSS department. You can take them in, and they will scan them in, and then they'll be on file on the chart. And if anything ever happens and you're brought to Bloomington Hospital, you have them. You could do that if you, like, people that vacate or spend part of the year in California or Florida, they could do that at some hospitals there. Um Definitely making sure whoever your, your health care rep is or other family members have them. Uh, one of my good friends, she is the health care rep for her parents, and she keeps their advanced directives in the glove compartment of her car because mm-hmm. she said, if something happens to them, I'm going to be jumping in the car and driving to them. And I don't mm-hmm. want to think, oh, is it in a file somewhere? Mm-hmm. That's why people will put these in a file or a lockbox somewhere. Right. But then nobody even knows where they are. So we really want to make sure that the person that is making those decisions, the person that's going to help you out, has access to those. Um, there are some, you know, people can store them on a cloud, for instance. You know, that way person would have it. Um, you know, they can just download it when they need it. Some states that have um, documents called a post or a most, which we'll probably get into talking about in a few minutes, they've got registries so that all those documents are stored and any hospital anywhere any doctor's office can go and look does the patient have this document if so they can download that document and that helps too from keeping mm-hmm. multiple copies of documents being around mm-hmm. so how often do you hear this this is you know my personal case so i went up to indianapolis my, my mother was taken to the hospital i was the closest son i went to the hospital she wasn't doing very well doctor came out and said you know she's got a dnr you know, do not resuscitate. I had no idea, and neither did my brothers. You know, there were three of us. None of us knew, and you know, it was just sort of a shock to me. She was, she came out of it all right. She lived another couple of years, but it, you know, is that a common thing where somebody will create something like that and not share? Can I just first interject <clears throat> that we're going to talk about DNR, we're going to talk about post, but my real comment is those are medical documents, okay? Mm-hmm. And I frankly think if any attorney prepares that, that's wrong, okay? Those are intended specifically to be done with a physician. And I inform clients about it. I make the, educate them about it. But that is not something that's my document, gotcha. you know, something I prepare. Okay, so Melanie? you guys go. <laughs> well, I just wanted to add something when you're talking about who, who needs to know when wills or, or, or directives have been executed. And in addition to the actual person who's being named as the healthcare representative, I believe that the discussion needs to be held with between the individual and all of their family mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. caring others to say, I have done this. I have executed this document and this is the person I have chosen so that they get to have that conversation before a situation arises and suddenly here comes the healthcare representative with their piece of paper saying I'm in charge and you know you have multiple other family members who may have a disagreement with that Um, or like you Bob Mm -hmm. who got surprised oh look mom has a DNR order Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it really behooves us to include all of our loved ones in those conversations and that decision making Mm -hmm. and here's what I want and here's how I want things to be and here's who I want to be in charge so that everybody comes together and understands that plan and you don't end up bumping into conflicts at a later date Mm -hmm. when it's really important that everybody be able to come together. Let me give our phone numbers again, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. 812-855-0811. We're we're sort of talking over each other. Okay, 812-855-0811 in Bloomington. Uh, Toll-free, 1-877-285-9348. And you can also email us for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org and follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Well, just picking up what what Bob said about a DNR, maybe we should just explain that a little more. And if... I guess that trumps these other things or, or, yeah, what would happen if somebody did have that in place and the family didn't know about it or didn't right. agree with it? So um, when when you are looking at your health care and looking at, you know, if you're going into a situation, you're having a surgery or you're coming in, in thinking about what kind of care would I want? 
I want to make it clear, too, when people think about DNR, they think about, oh, nothing's being done. You're always receiving care. So really, when you're looking at what kind of care do you want, that's what we're talking about. People will kind of, that that means they're not going to do anything. I've had patients say, I want you to cut that DNR bracelet off my dad's wrist because that means that you're not going to treat his cancer. No, that's not what that means. What that means is we're not going to do chest compressions. We're not going to give medications to try and get the heart started again. But we're going to do absolutely everything else, and we're also going to give medications and do things to keep him comfortable. We don't just close the door and walk out of the room and say, oh, oh, he doesn't want anything. So I want to make it clear that patients are always still cared for no matter what, but it's deciding what level of care and thinking, is this care going to be um, productive? Is this care going to lead to continued life for me and and the quality of life that I want? Mm -hmm. So kind of the DNR, that's the question of there. Do you want chest compressions? Do you want medications administered that might restart the heart? Um, Do you want to have a ventilator put on you to help you breathe if you can't breathe? Those are kind of the basic big DNR questions. There's a new form called the Indiana Post, and it goes beyond that. That really does go into the levels, a lot of different levels of care. That's actually a physician's order for life-sustaining treatment. So once that's signed, unlike a living will, which is like, this is my guidance, but it's not necessarily, it could not be followed. It's not a legal document. The post is actually a physician order, which means it is gonna be followed. And it goes through a lot of different options, like would you want antibiotics? Mm. Would you want to have artificial nutrition or hydration? Um, So it has a lot more questions. It has a spot on there for you to appoint a healthcare rep. And it's something that is filled out only if somebody would be expected, if a doctor would not be surprised if the patient died within a year. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't have a post. I don't think anybody in this room would have a post. But if you were elderly frail, if you had a terminal diagnosis, a post might be something that you would want to do. Okay, we have a phone call, so let's go to uh, Sarah from Bloomington, who's on the line. Hi. It uh, used to be that the, that the uh, plastic file full of documents to fill out or, or forms to fill out that they have at the chaplain's office used to be on the available, sort of hanging on the walls of the long hall in Bloomington Hospital. Uh, but in any case, the the uh, it has a living will in it. It has a healthcare representative in it. It has a make your choices clear advanced directive thing. And and I was told that EMTs are instructed to check inside your freezer for this folder that has this bright yellow sheet in it. Uh, this plastic folder that you can put in your freezer. So mine is in my freezer. Okay, sounds like a good place for it. Have you guys heard of that? Yes, okay. yes, and and I'm I'm hoping that that we still have those forms available through the the office so that people can pick them up. And the idea of that plastic folder is that you would keep it in your refrigerator or freezer, so in case of fire, that it's uh, in a fairly protected place and everybody knows where to find it. Um, in terms of paramedics coming, though. Um, a living will or healthcare representative would not preclude them from doing everything possible to maintain life and resuscitate that patient in case of an emergency. Yeah, that's not a DNR. Right, right. That's that's something different from the post uh, do not resuscitate or the do not resuscitate order. So, um, you know, we, on those, we often suggest if somebody is in that stage where they're they're we're anticipating their death and they do qualify to to have those documents those we usually suggest you tape on the back of the front door so that when the para, if the paramedics do show up you can whip off the envelope because those are signed doctor's orders either the DNR or the post and that is the only thing that would halt uh, the you know the the measures that paramedics might take in an emergency situation all right, Sarah. In, inside the front door of your house? Yeah. Yeah. Where the, where the ambulance is most likely to pull up if they were called. That's the practical way. Oh, my word. 
<laughs> All right. I, I just can imagine having that every time somebody comes in your house and reading your DNR order. Oh my goodness. Oh well, you know, you could you could <laughs> cover it up with a wildlife calendar or something. Or, or people put it in an envelope. Yeah, yeah. put it. Yeah, they just you know, put it in an envelope. It yeah. can be very discreet. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks a lot for the call. Thank you. 855 here in Bloomington. Toll free at uh, 1-877-285-9348. You can also email us questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We're talking a lot about your health care wishes, but Peggy, what happens if someone dies and then and they don't have a will? Okay. Um, I know it's very common, uh, common out there that, oh the state is going to take your money. That's not true. Okay, I want to get rid of that myth right away, which is we have wills. So again, just as we've been talking about, that's so you can plan ahead and very much control what you want happening. But if you don't do that, there is a set of state laws. Um, We call them intestate laws. Uh, You're dying without a will. And that sets out, uh, based on relationships in the family, who inherits what portion. For instance, if you are married and you have kids, then your spouse will inherit a portion of your assets, and actually children will inherit the rest. Now, that's actually an excellent reason often to get a will, because particularly if you have younger kids, I don't know that everybody wants them to inherit Okay, so one way to fix that is to have a will. But the law is trying to balance out who's in the family, okay? Um, And then it goes down through a pecking order. That's really interesting. If you don't have a spouse, then... Then it goes to your children. I mean, how would they figure, though, like, would it, in terms of next of kin, would it be a a sibling or if if, if you, you know, you're unmarried and... Well, if you are, okay, you're unmarried, and let's say your parents are living, it's going to split parents and siblings. If your parents are not living, it'll go to your siblings. Okay. If you have a sibling who's not living but has you have niece nephew, that sibling's portion goes down to the niece nephew. It's you know it's a little bit like thinking about the family tree, okay? But there are a few twists here and there, particularly that starting one that many people think if I die, my spouse gets everything. Not necessarily, if you have kids. If you have kids, your kids get a portion. So, Peggy, for people who haven't thought much about a will, I mean, how how long does it take to go in and draft a will? Can you give us a rough estimate of how much it costs for to get a will? Okay. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite questions now, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, most people, we would have an initial meeting, okay, and we all, we'll ask them to bring some information that we've asked them to collect beforehand, you know, a listing of their assets, a listing of who their intended beneficiaries and family are, have that first meeting, okay, and then typically we'll work through decisions. Maybe there's a few left over they have to tell us about and then come back for signing. That's mm-hmm. by far the normal thing. Certainly some people can get much more complicated than that, okay. Um, cost, you know, boy. That is the toughie, okay, because, yes, there are folks out there who will give flat fee for, for a will, say, okay, a will is worth you right. know, sure. $500 or something. But, you know, the circumstances change and are different from client to client. So I can do, you know, we can have wills that are simple, quote, unquote, simple, down in that four or 500 range. And, of course, I have some that are much, much more complicated. Mm-hmm. What makes a will legal? What makes it legal? Yeah. Okay. First of all, we better be in writing, of course. And secondly, there are specific requirements about how it's to be executed, how it's to be witnessed and signed. Okay. And then better be competent. Okay. The whole purpose of that witnessing is to have some external somebody else saying, yes, you know, this person appears to be someone who's got the, the legal mental capacity to understand what they're doing, okay? What, and I'm not, I can get deeper, but I'm not no, going what, to. <laughs> so what's the role um, and responsibility of the executor of the will? Okay, the executor, which actually in Indiana we call a personal representative okay. of the estate, that is, that's that job of, okay, you got a will or you don't have a will, you have assets out there that need to be 
collected, bills paid, taxes paid, final whatever cleaned up, and that is that person's job, okay? Um, depending on what's going on, certainly the executor slash personal representative, uh, that job is a job that's appointed through the court, okay? We have two different ways of handling this. One is more involvement of the court, and then we have what's called unsupervised administration, which is pretty much where the court recognizes a will or recognizes that person as the proper one to be appointed, and then says, here's your authority to go out and deal with things, uh, go off, handle things, come back and report to the court when you're done does and, that, and wrap it up. Does that person also, are they responsible for the person's debt? So if they have debt, you know, if, if it's a widow and do they, and it's one of the kids is the executor, are they then charged with There's paying? never uh, a personal responsibility for a debt unless you actually signed off on the debt, okay? Okay. So there's never a personal responsibility. In fact, one of the pluses of having that process at probate, which makes people feel a little scary, <laughs> but one of the benefits absolutely of probate is that it has a very orderly time limit for dealing with any debts. And in fact, if you give notice to the, the creditors and they do not file a claim in court within the proper period of time, too bad. You don't have to pay that debt. Nobody does, okay? So dealing with debts is definitely an important part of that process, but personal representative executor never has personal, that person does not have responsibility for that debt. We have a phone call. I want to go to, uh, to Paul from Bloomington, who's on the line, Paul? Hi. Yeah, uh, my question has to do with the the post that you were talking about earlier, and um, it it sounds like uh, someone who's who's really elderly would probably want to have such a thing filled out. And my question is, my mother, who is elderly, um, also has dementia. So, could she? I mean, would her signature be legal on 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 such a document? And I'll just um, hang up and, and listen to your question offline. Right. right Thank you. Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one because uh, we want to make sure somebody has capacity um, when they are signing any documents. So um, they would need to be examined by a physician. Your mom would need to be examined by a physician and be uh, evaluated whether she has the ability to understand the, the uh, decisions that she's making, the repercussions of the decisions. Um, so I tend to think probably not. Uh, if somebody has a post and they have a healthcare representative on the post, they can't. That healthcare representative can change the post. But um, yeah, somebody with dementia, we would really be concerned about making sure that they had the capacity to make that they were able to make those decisions. And you would want that person to be evaluated by a physician who said that that was okay. Peggy, any thoughts on that? That I'm not Melanie covering. or Melanie. <laughs> we, we both know, we were both passing notes with yeah. the same thoughts. Um, and and actually, Carol mentioned this before: is that the post is a special document for individuals who have a health condition that likely will result in their death within a coming year. Um, so it has to be a chronic uh, health condition. It may just be a general overall decline, but not only does the physician have to order it. The physician has to be able to state, yes, this is this individual's condition, and therefore they're they're eligible to have the post. It may be a terminal diagnosis. It may be something else um, that's going to result in increasing debility. But and, but the doctor part's very important. And because the physician would be having the conversation with the person, the physician would be evaluating at the same time. Is the person understanding? what their choices are, do they understand their situation. So a physician would be able to say, no, this person is not able at this point in time to, to complete this form, we've kind of missed that boat, or yes, the person can. And I think that is part of the reason why it really is important that it, it's so good that the, it's a physician's order and the physician is involved in, in that decision making. You know, we only have about two minutes to go, and I want to give you a chance to, um, you know, we may have missed, it's a great big topic, so we may have missed some things. I want to give you a lot, each last you know, half a minute or 45 seconds to, to mention something that you think we should have talked about. Peggy? I, I hope it's apparent from the discussion today that it's this is 
and, and as we know personally, a very complicated area, very emotional. Uh, we're talking about legal things. We're talking about medical things. And it's, I'm going to go back to that core um, comment that Melanie made, which is very much, if, number one, plan ahead. Number two, involve everybody who's your loved ones in discussing and sharing with them what your decisions are. Make sure they know about it. And then the third thing I think is, from a legal standpoint, mm -hmm. is make sure you keep those documents in order and don't get too complicated uh, in terms of doing the wrong, you know, conflicting things. Millie? Mm -hmm. I just want to encourage people to, to be brave and to take that step and acknowledge um, that as we are born that we also will die, and that's a reality. And as we proceed through our life and look at these things, that communication and education will lead to making informed decisions about and give you the most control over how you want your life to be lived. Mm -hmm. It has to do with having trusting relationships, being flexible, being able to adapt, being patient, having humor, forgiving, loving mm -hmm. each other, making choices, being aware of the potential consequences, the pros and cons of the decisions you make, and having people with you um, and feeling connected that you're going to proceed through this um, with faith. And Carol. That's it. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we've talked a lot today about practical things, but there's also the whole idea of the um, helping people kind of with the psychological and the psychic journey, both the patient, the person dying, and also the family members. Mm -hmm. And I just want to stress that there are resources and help for people, and it is very important that, that those needs are addressed as well. Again, today, with only this amount of time, we hardly even got to get into <laughs> any of the practical stuff. This is such a big topic, but I do want to clarify that there are people within the medical community. There's a wonderful palliative care team we have at, or they have at IU Health Bloomington Hospital. Um, there are people like me in the private practice community. There's hospice. Um, so there's a lot of people to help with that. All right. Thank you very much, all three of you, Peggy Frisbee, Melanie Miller, and Carol Seidel. For producer Angela Batista, engineer Mike Pashkash, and Sarah Whitmire, I'm Bob Salzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and Digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.